This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to the fifth and final speaker for UC Santa Barbara's Distinguished Speaker Series. We have George Powell with us tonight. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter. Very, it's very complicated. It's my name, John Greathouse. No, no rainbow tweets, no burritos, no kittens, I promise. Super excited to have George here tonight. He's a great example of putting together your passion um, with your vocation, the passion of skateboarding, and turn it into a, not just a vocation, but into a worldwide phenomenon, help grow that industry tremendously. Before that, he spent 10 years at um, a couple of different companies in the aerospace industry, including HP. Um, and that was, that was very fundamental to how he ran his business in many ways. Um, when we'll get into that in a moment. He founded his first skateboard company in, when he was 33 in 1976. Two years later, he befriended and became um, quite good friends with Stacy Peralta, became partners. At that time, Stacy was a world champion skateboarder. And together, they built a great business. Um, incredible marketing with um, the Bones Brigade, which was a group of young, undiscovered skateboarders, many of which are now in the Skateboard um, Hall of Fame. Over the next 15 years, they worked with folks like Alan um, Gelfand, Mike Miguel, Steve Cavallero, Tony Hawk, Rodney Mullen, Lance Mountain, Tony Guerrero, Ken, uh, Kevin Harris, and dozens and dozens more. So even if you're not into skateboarding, I know that you've heard some of those names. These people have became um, international uh, celebrities. So George is president of the Santa Barbara Bay Skate One Corporation. Uh, it's a parent company of many uh, brands that you know, Pau Peralta Skateboards, Bones, Wheels, Eulogy, Inline Skating Products, amongst um, many more. The company employs 150 people, and they build many of their products here in Santa Barbara, uh, which is a wonderful thing. It's a great thing for our community here, and it's a good thing um, for, the, for the U.S. in general. They design, they manufacture, they do um, many, many things here right down the street in Santa Barbara. Uh, and their products go all over the world to 60 countries. So this is literally an international organization. Let's take a quick look at a video that shows you a behind-the-scenes look at Skate One. In the early 1970s, I built my 10-year-old son, Abe, a custom skateboard in our garage. Little did I know that building that board would launch this entire company and change my life forever. I'm George Powell, and I've been building skateboards ever since. We started in 1976, and we've grown to 150 employees over the years. We specialize in building professional skateboard equipment. everything here under one roof. We conceive, design, manufacture, market, sell, and ship our skateboard products from our home facility in Santa Barbara, California. California, here I come, get ready. Right back where I started from. Our products are proudly made in America. 
for us, business is personal, and that's how we like it. Open up the You might think making something as simple as a skateboard deck would be easy. But it's more complicated than most people think. There are dozens of steps, and at each step, there's a person adding their own personal touch. In the 70s, we helped pioneer skateboarding art along with the realization that each board is a blank canvas, begging for some kind of unique and creative identity of its own. Our team of artists, designers, and technicians take as much care to make the artwork on our decks, wheels, and clothing as special as the products themselves. always searching out and testing new materials to build stronger, more responsive skateboards, lighter and more maneuverable trucks, and faster, longer-lasting wheels for each skate terrain. You see, most of the skaters who write our products punish them while having fun cruising, carving, grinding, slamming and flying through the air. So we design our products knowing that they're going to slam into concrete, metal, and asphalt in ways we can only begin to imagine. I've spent my life being passionate about making great skate products because I love to make fun things and I love the freedom, creativity, and soul of skateboarding. After almost 40 years, I still come to work every day excited about trying to build a better skateboard. Now, I'm just doing it in a bigger, better garage with friends who love skating too. So that gives you a glimpse into what they're doing every day there um, at Skate One. It looks like a fun, a fun place to work. And I love that little vignette there where George hugged the guy playing the guitar. I mean, that's the kind of place I want to work at. Wonderful. So George is credited with four patents, two of which were really pivotal to creating what we consider to be the modern skateboarding industry today. And in partnership with Stacy, they created or they were pioneers in the skateboarding um, movie genre. Some of the very, very early what would be called now, with a very fancy term of content marketing, they were doing content marketing 20 plus years ago. Creating videos with the Bones Brigade, being goofy, falling, and really making skateboarding acceptable to kids that maybe weren't as good as a Tony Hawk or some of these other guys. Um, really making, making skateboarding cool, but at the same time, fun. They did that long before the, some MBA, some Harvard MBA told them that they should be doing content marketing. And those videos are, are um, are widely available uh, on YouTube or, and, and or Netflix. So George likes to spend his time now working in R&D. That was always his first love, product development, working with the art director, the design department. 
As always, I bring balanced individuals into, um, into this speaker series, not just folks that have made a uh, mountain of dough, but people that have, have had um, success in their private lives. And George is, is a great example of that as well. Married with four children. Um, two are grown, two are still at home in, in, uh, in their teenage years, and a grandfather um, for up to two. He grew up in West Hollywood and went to school at Stanford where he earned his master's degree in mechanical engineering and product design. Um, and he was able to leverage that very technical background uh, into a very fun and long-lasting career. And you know he's a good guy. You know he's a good guy because he enjoys his two golden retrievers, Luke and Finn. As a man with two golden retrievers, uh, that's near and dear to my heart. Let's welcome George Powell to our class. Welcome. Nice introduction. Thank you. Yep. Well, you earned it. Uh, well, and okay. If you say so. You're feeling, uh, this guy's feeling under the weather and <clears throat> like a professional, he still came tonight. Um, would have been easy for him to cancel, but uh, he didn't, and I appreciate that. So, so if I hack. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll edit it out. It's cool. Um, so you, it was mentioned in that video, but I think I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about how this whole thing started. You were, you were an engineer. You weren't a skateboard mogul, right? So you were an engineer, and your son came home, and sort of how did, that, how did that all go down? You pulled out your old skateboard. You realized that this wasn't hacking it. And sure. most people would have said, hey, sorry, let's just go buy a skateboard, son. And you said, wait a minute, this is a problem that might be worth solving. Excuse me. Um, this is kind of my founding story, but uh, it goes something like this. My, I had two skateboards that I bought with blue chip stamps when I was in college. We, uh, you guys don't know what blue chip stamps are, but you used to get stamps when you bought food. And it, you kept saving them long enough, you could trade them in for something. Kind of like uh, points on the something you'd buy now. Uh, we saved up enough books of these things to buy a couple of skateboards. And we bought a couple of, they were probably like closeout skateboards. They were Hobie super surfers. And we'd skated them around Stanford. We're, my wife and I were the only two people that pushed around the inner quad in the evening when nobody was there in 1965. And so we did this for a year or two and then stuck them in the garage, got on to work, went to work. It just, they sat in the garage. And then when my son was about nine, he came home and said, I want a skateboard. I went, you want a skateboard? Cool. I have some skateboards. Let's, let's, I pulled him out, and we rode him for a while. And he came back one day, and he said, hey, these, these wheels are lame, Dad. I, I know. They're, you know. Every time we hit a twig or a pebble, we stop and fall off. But that's the way it is. That's skateboarding. That's, that's skateboarding. <laughs> he goes, no, my friends have yellow wheels. And... I went, yellow wheels. Yeah, well, you know, yellow doesn't make any difference. What the hell? And he went, no, Dad, honest, they're better. So I humored him, and I went to the store, Pacific Palisades Hobby Shop, where they had a little teeny skate section. And I looked in the counter, and lo and behold, urethane wheels. And I knew what they were immediately. Uh, as an engineer, I went, oh, my God, why didn't I think of that? That's so perfect. So I bought some, took them home, put them on my board. We rode them for a while. We went, oh, this is amazing. 
And uh, at that point, something went off in my head. It went, you know, all of a sudden, this thing that was just a toy has just become a viable vehicle. This is really going to be a cool thing. And it's now complete. It had a deck. It had trucks that turned. And it needed wheels that gripped. And when I saw those and I rode them, experienced it, I went, there's an opportunity to get into a ground floor, into a new industry, something that's going to be fun, and it's going to get me out of aerospace, where I hate being, and I get into sporting goods. And so I started developing stuff in my garage. And that was basically the beginnings. One thing led to another after that. I just, you know, I knew aerospace materials. I had a saw I built and glued and screwed things together and, and tried things until I got them to work. Well, you're being humble about it, but there's all, a lot of people do that. Very few people then go from the kitchen to industrial, you know, spend the money to get the industrial grade uh, I know, equipment. That's, that's the scary part. That is the scary part. And that's yeah. why most people just kind of screw around in their kitchen and their garage and, and then they go back to work at the aerospace company. So let's talk about HP. What, what, I know that was a pivotal experience for you. You were a relatively young man at that time. What did HP teach you that you later built upon when you started your own company? Yeah, well, I was young, but I knew a lot more. <laughs> you guys don't get that. <laughs> I do. <clears throat> Hewlett Packard was, um, I was there in 1966, seven, and it was still very influenced by its founders, uh, Dave and Bill, the Hewlett and Packard <clears throat> that everybody knows. The engineering department where I worked, it happened to be microwave. Um, it was a s- relatively small department. It was probably, for HP, it was small. It was probably 25,000 feet bay of yep. engineers with desks and whatnot. Uh, and we were, worked in little teams. But the environment they had struck me as amazing. It was so unlike what I thought going to work would be. Uh, every morning they had free, they rolled out free coffee and free donuts for everybody. Uh, I wanted to build something. Uh, they'd let me borrow ma- material or buy it at cost, mm-hmm. <clears throat> use their machines. That We had a, our own workshop, own machine shop, so we could build our own stuff. You want to build a hot rod, whatever, mm. you could build it in there. So they were just very progressive. They treated everybody really like a human being. And uh, when I went to other places and I saw how normal companies treated people in the 70s, right. 60s, 70s, 80s, um, I went, whoa, this is terrible. What, you know, who wants, who wants to work there? I remember going to places like uh, Lockheed in L.A. or Northrop, and it was a sea of desks. Yep. Uh, I won't say exactly the acronym for what that was described as, but it was just people bent over their desks for as far, literally as, far as you could see. It was like we're talking 75,000 feet of desks, people bent over on drafting tables, drawing. And... Uh, a little water cooler here and there, <laughs> yep. and bells that rang. <clears throat> it, was a, it was a terrible environment. And those people, you know, were treated like peons and slaves. And I right. thought, this is awful. Yep. Anyway, uh, starting my own company, uh, HP was my model. It went, boy, if I ever can I, and I can afford that, I want to treat my people the way HP treated me because that way people loved working there they like to stay, mm-hmm. and then they work hard because you hire good people, and they want to work right, hard. Right. You just got to give them what they need. Well, it's amazing what happens when you treat people like adults. They oftentimes act like adults. 
We try to treat people like kids. You let them play like kids. Yeah. No, but you give them the responsibility and they, they'll step up to it as opposed to bells telling them when they can use the bathroom and all this kind of nonsense. No, especially in skateboarding. You tell somebody to do something, they're going to do the opposite. You know? <laughs> right, it's reverse we're, psychology. We're still in that reverse psychology mode, yeah. Well, let me ask the class a question. So I want to know, what, what do you guys think Dr. Seuss and skateboarding have in common? Any guesses? Dr. Seuss and skateboarding. <laughs> No. Going once. What do you think? There's a Dr. Seuss wrote a story called The Star-Bellied Sneetches. I don't know if any of you have read The Star-Bellied Sneetches. Uh, you're too young to have your own children, but maybe your parents read it to you. It's a parable that's actually a metaphor for teenagers. Junior high school, high school, and if you don't grow up, it goes on forever. <laughs> it's a parable about creatures called sneeches, and half of them had stars on their belly button, and the other half didn't, and those with stars thought they were better than everybody else, and until somebody came in from outside and marketed a machine that would take your star off or put your star back on, and he convinced them all to run through his machine until he had all of their money, and they didn't know who had a star and who didn't, <laughs> and in the end, they all grew up and decided that it was okay to be a sneech, whether you had a star or you didn't, which is a nice tale. And he had all our money, and he was happy too. So, anyway, it's kind of a, it's kind of the way I viewed skateboarding in the beginning because that's the way kids were. If you're cool, you're in the in crowd. You're one of the beautiful people, and skateboarders were often in the beginning rejected. They were outcasts. They were the rebels. There were the kids who didn't play soccer or football or basketball. They wanted something to do themselves, and they wanted to have, do an individual sport. So I thought this kind of breaking away from the little cliques that we all have been part of growing up was uh, an important thing. And Dr. Seuss kind of epitomized that for me. But marketing to, to skateboarders, uh, one of the things that people ask me is, well, you know, aren't we all rebels? Aren't we all independent? Aren't all skaters different and not followers? And the sad truth is that I think skaters aren't that different from everybody else. There's a few people that lead, 1%, 2% at the most, and there's a lot of people who follow. And there's a lot of people who want to be part of a group. Right. Like any market, whether it's surfing, bicycles, skateboarding, being a computer nerd, whatever it is you want to be, um, there's only a few people who really lead. Yep. Well, that's even true in business. There's a handful of people that are truly entrepreneurs that lead, build companies, and most people don't. They join those companies. But I want to touch on something you, you mentioned about marketing, because you have an interesting sort of somewhat bifurcated market. You've got the 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid who wants to be a rebel, wants to be different. You've got to give a message, message to that kid. But you've also got the fathers, right? The former skaters or the 30-year-old guy that you know, wants to get back to skating. How do you manage those? Is it two messages? Are you having to manage conflicting messages or is it all the same message? Well, I guess it's conflicting because I got an email from uh, uh, someone who's one of my 35-year-olds who has been a customer since the 80s. Yep. And he's always bought our products. He loves skating. He still skates. And he saw one of our new boards. 
which we're making for this diverse group. Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't like that board. It happened to be a graphic of a skeleton with... Uh, I don't know what that is. In his hand. <laughs> and he went, you know, I've always trusted you guys. I don't want you guys to be, you know, pushing, oh, wow. pushing you know, pot at my son. And I had to write him back, and I go, you know, this is hard for us, but we're trying to market to 40 and 50-year-olds right. as well as 6- and 12-year-olds, and right. we have different lines. And so... It, it is hard. We're grappling with it. It's not an easy thing for us to do. We've always focused on young people, and now we're having to focus on, you know, this makes us kind of schizophrenic. Yeah. Yeah, and then you risk diluting the brand, confusing the brand, confusing your customers. Um, maybe you need to come out with a, an older no-weed brand or something. Really? <laughs> well, you know, skating has been a rebel sport. Now yeah. that we're accepted, now that so many people skateboard, now that it's not... Rebel anymore, particularly, right. Right. Um, and your dad skateboards with you, right? Jeez, right. right. Uh, it's you know, we're having trouble keeping the core where it needs to be, where you're independent and you're thinking for yourself, and we're pushing that aspect of it, right. of the culture. Yep. Well, but you know, it's, it's a change. Yeah. Let's take the first um, student's question. Um, thanks for coming. It's I've really been looking forward to this all quarter. Um, awesome, thanks. Ever since I began skating 12 years ago, I'd always dreamed of picking up a set of bone Swiss ceramic bearings, but until recently I could not afford them. Uh, these bearings, as you know, are seldom bought because of their high price tag. Why do you continue to make them, and who is your target market? Do you need to market for such high-end products, or do they sell themselves to people who have the means to buy them? Well, my first question is, what have you done that you can afford them now? <laughs> you need to raise the price. <laughs> you must have a job. Okay. Um, we've, often, uh, we've often approached marketing from the top down. Um, <clears throat> the ceramics are actually a, a top up for us. They were our first top product. Bone Swiss was our top product for a decade. Um, the reason we did that was because um, ceramic bearings were becoming affordable. They are distinctly better. And we thought that there was probably a small group of people who could afford it. Uh, I think we sell more to roller skaters because they tend to be an older crowd. And if you're going to skate every three nights a week or something, you can afford $150 for your Swiss bearings. They're going to last you forever. <clears throat> if you're a racer, you're going to want to go faster. And if you happen to be affluent, you want the best. So there, there are those segments that gravitate to a ceramic bearing. But um, the vast majority of our bearings that we sell are Bones Reds, as you probably know. Um, Bearings are probably our strongest product line, and we service everything from the least expensive quality bearing that you could buy for your skateboard all the way up to the very top ceramic bearing that you might use as for a racer, and everything in between, and a whole line of products. And what we sell mostly is reds. It's that one step up from mini logo. Mini logo and reds is where most people go, that's a great bearing for a great price, and I can afford that. So the other stuff is for the pros and people who can afford it. And 
Bearings have become a, a commodity that um, is almost disposable. People don't buy a set of bearings and transfer them from one wheel to the next. They'll buy a set of bearings. When their wheels wear out, they'll buy new wheels and bearings. So reds are perfect for that. So it fits the consumer pattern, too. When I go back to growing up and something your dad used to say to you, at the time he used to say it to you, you said, oh, you're, he's just being dramatic and he's being a dad. And then you got out and you became a dad and you had your own business. Share with us that saying. And then if you can think of some examples where you were like, oh, crap, he was right. Well, when I was growing up, <clears throat> I was pretty, pretty sheltered. Uh, I grew up in a middle class family. I went to Hollywood High School. Played sports, <clears throat> ran for student office. Um, life seemed honest and good for me. The only bad thing I ran into was, you know, some of the antics of the team and our principal did some uncool stuff. Mm. But you know, life wasn't bad. People weren't evil. Right, right. And my dad used to say to me, "Son, when you grow up, I want you to know that business is a jungle." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. For sure. <clears throat> and raised my eyes and kind of walked off and went, he's really old. <laughs> and as I grew older and I had more experiences in life, I began to realize that, you know, a lot of people lie, cheat, steal, anything they can to get away with something for free or to get it past you. And that life is not clean and simple and the way it should be. You know, if you could design everything so that everybody played fair, that would be cool, but they don't. So in aerospace, I discovered, you know, people were taking bribes. Uh, in my business, in skateboarding, I, I've seen people <laughs> um, steal your ideas and your products as fast as they possibly can, <clears throat> market it as if they invented it, and then badmouth you at the same time. Right, right. So this just, you know, that's the way business is. And as a, as an entrepreneur, somebody thinking of starting a business or going into business, you're going to run into this. It's everywhere. So not to be cynical. No. And I certainly wouldn't say it's a jungle. <laughs> but right. be warned. Right. Yeah. He was ahead of his time. He used to be before Axel Rose. Really? So none of you guys in here are going to do that, right? We know that that's uncool. And actually, it's not just uncool. It's harder to grow a business when you lie, steal, and steal because people find out about it, and they don't want to do business with you. So do the right thing. Be honest. Have good character. You can work with guys like George. And life actually gets easier for you. Business life actually gets easier for you. Um, we'll take the next student question. All right. Uh, I started skating in 1999, which is when you were just Powell Skateboards, which was, a, I would say, a different image than you were when you were in the 80s, when it was Powell Peralta. So my question is, what was it like... When to, I was less cool. It was just a different image. Uh, what was it like to lose your partner, uh, one who really built the image of the brand and pioneered the videos that made it what it was? How did it, like, how did it change the business when he came back? Well, you really cut to the quick. <clears throat> All right. Well, you know, um, having a good partnership is, is like being married or being in a relationship with uh, someone of, you're fond of. And uh, when you break up, it's really hard. And uh, in, our, in our case, it was a really, really good relationship. It was a good partnership because we had very complementary skills. Stacy soon knew nothing about making products. 
I knew less than I thought I did about marketing to skateboarders. So he became instantly expert and added something that we didn't have in our company. And I took care of all of everything else. So together, we were great. So when he left, I didn't have a marketing department. I went back to kind of where I was before he came. And it was very difficult to build myself back up again. Uh, essentially, when I first began, I was a product company. I'm an engineer. I made this skateboard. It's really cool. I love it. You should buy it. Kind of a thing. And you know, when Stacy came, he goes, no, no, no. We need a team. We're going to promote the team. We're not going to promote our products. We're going to make them the stars. And people will buy our product because they write it, <clears throat> which is what he did. And it turned out to be true, and we grew. With Stacy and the whole team basically starting their own companies and moving on, I was left with the people who were a level down as amateurs wanting to become pros, uh, and about 15% of my former market. Our sales actually dropped 85% in a period of two years, two and a half years. So uh, I don't know if you've ever lived through something like that, but trust me, it isn't fun. And you have to lay off all your friends, and your business shrinks, and you give your building back to your bank, mm. and all these bad things happen to you. <clears throat> I chose to go on because I loved skateboarding. It's what I did. It's what I believed in. And I was deeply hurt. It, was, you know, it really hurts you in your heart when something like that happens. And I guess to some extent I went, well... Screw it! I'm just gonna, I'm gonna succeed anyway without Stacy. So, I did my best, and with the help of the people that I have now, um, that I work with, we built the company back up again slowly, as a product company. We haven't been a successful marketing company in the sense that we were before. We did it the hard way, and it took us 20 years to do it to get back to a point where we're one of the top five companies in the industry again. So it was, it was really painful. And ironically, now that we've succeeded again, um, Stacy seems to be coming back in, and it's at the right time for him to come back and help skateboarding again and promote skateboarding. So it looks like we're going to be working together again. So uh, I put my heart back out there and hope it isn't broken again. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we sort of just heard the end of the story, which is a wonderful ending, which is you guys working together again, and you've sort of mended the fences. But let's go back to the beginning a little bit. Sure. So, you know, some of you guys know Stacy was um, the Z Boys, you know, the whole uh, guys in Venice Beach, surfer-oriented skaters, kind of bad boys, all that, right? And you met you met him when he was very young, so multi-pronged question. First off, just what was it about him that you said, you know, this is the guy. Like, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm running a serious business, and this is a guy I can run a serious business with. What, what stood out with you? What, you know, why did you go there with him? Well, it wasn't an all-or-nothing kind of decision in the beginning. Yep. <clears throat> it wasn't like, we're going to be partners, and this is going to be so just a great relationship. Yep. It was one of those things that kind of evolved. I was... <clears throat> 30-something, he was 20, 19, 20, and he was uh, one of the top skaters. He was kind of at the end of his career at that time. Careers ended at wow. 21 instead of 51. You guys were over the hill. 51. And 
he was looking for a way to get into the industry and said, why don't I work with you and make, it, uh, make your team better, I'll form a team ah, okay. and I'll do promotions. So step one was he did a team in promotions and he did so well at that, he said, well, I'd like to run your ads because I don't like your product ads. And he start, started doing ads, I let him do that. And they were crazy and weird and different and I went, really? Okay, gulp. And he did ads and they were great. So his relationship evolved until really he was he was running everything except operations and manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And we became essentially partners at that point in time. So it was an evolution. Yep. And what I saw in him in the beginning was that he was more mature. Yeah. And he was straightforward and honest and uh, he wasn't a braggart. He wasn't right. boastful. He was a very humble person. Willing to learn. Willing to learn and still is. So we talk a lot about mentorship in here. That's a common theme. Um, I, I love it when I see students put themselves out there to, to get a mentor. You were older, as you mentioned. Um, initially, you were the mentor to Stacy, And then how did, did you feel like that relationship sort of evolved a little bit over time? Sure. Uh, for me, it was hiring a 20-year-old, and I'm a 30-year-old, and I have all this great experience in right. aerospace. Right. <clears throat> so I'm thinking I'm mentoring Stacy, when in fact Stacy, I think, is mentoring me a little bit too, because I'm pretty clueless when it comes to the real intricacies of the industry and how to how to attract kids, how to reach them, and Stacy quietly helped me to learn how to do that. And I think that's a wonderful thing about mentorship, and that, that you can learn from the person you're mentoring if you're open to it, um, and, but they have to be tactful and mindful of that balance of power. And it's okay for that balance of power to shift over time, but I think it has to shift slowly and appropriately, not just immediately. Like if Stacy had come into you very early on and said, I want to burn a car in front of your parents' house and we're going to make that an ad, that probably wouldn't have worked. But they actually did that. They actually burned a car in front of George's parents' house, like in suburban in Goleta, right? Right? Was it here in Santa Barbara? No, actually, it was in Brentwood. Oh, Brentwood. Even worse. Uh, tell, tell us that story. That's, that's crazy, but it worked. Yeah, it was about the third or fourth ad when <clears throat> the first ads had been really successful and they'd been crazy. And <laughs> Stacy dressed up skaters like zoot suitors and put them in front of Chinese restaurants, and everyone went, what? <laughs> and he went, I, I'm going to burden this. Stacy... Uh, Craig Stesick, who was Stacy's mentor yep. in marketing, yep. said, I have this art project that's left over. I got a half a Cadillac. Let's set it on fire and put Ray Bones in front of it, Ray Rodriguez, in front of the car, and it'll make a really good backdrop, and it'll make a statement about what modern transportation should be. Burn the car, uh -huh. ride the skateboard. Oh, I didn't get that. Okay. No. It was, it was, See, I'm, I'm slow. It was genius. I was slow, too. <laughs> And so I said, oh, she's, you, no, can't do that. He goes, well, no, he, he has a way of, you, you take rubber cement and acetone, you mix it together, you brush it on, and then when you light it, it flames really fast, it burns up, and then self-extinguishes because of the rubber cement. So I went, okay, you're sure. <laughs> Trust me, movies do it all the time. Right, right, right. So he backs the Cadillac in, and we're in a little cul-de-sac, and it's dark, and we brush this stuff all over the back of the Cadillac and we get it burning and it actually worked really well. You only get about 10 seconds of flame and then yep. it's gone. Yep. So we had to 
try to set up the camera and get it all just right and shoot in that little window. And we had to do it about five or six times. And about the third time we did it, the neighbors are coming out. And they're over the fences and they're going, hey, George, what are you doing? Right, right, right. And I'm just burning the car, don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about it. It's perfectly safe. Yeah. Well, something else that was unique about your marketing was the not shooting product, right? So back then it was all about you'd have a person standing there holding a skateboard or wheels or trucks or whatever it was and smiling and holding the product and you guys rejected that. You said, no product, we're not going to do product shots. And as a product guy, I'm sure you were excited about that, right? I was thrilled. <laughs> <clears throat> it was really hard for me to give up those beautiful studio shots. Right. You know, uh, 4,000 watt bulbs shining through a little hole to make your light, your, your wheel glow <clears throat> as if it was totally transparent. Anyway, right, right. those... <laughs> We had this big piece of plate glass we were shooting through, and it got so hot, we broke the whole glass. It just shattered in the middle shot. of the shoot. Yeah, that was fun. That's worse than burning a car. Uh, not really. <laughs> Craig, but it takes anyway, guts we'll to do through. that. Yeah, yeah it, it does. And Stacy, uh, bless his soul, and Craig, they really saw that the more we made fun of our guys, because they were known to be famous, the more accepted they became. We didn't put them on a pedestal. Right. We made fun of them. We made them dress up in funny things. Lance was holding the dead dog. Or, you know, people were standing there next to a... Steve Kevlar, I had to stand next to a Cadillac tail fin and go, why am I standing next to a tail fin? It's about me, right? Right, right. (laughs) Am I advertising Cadillacs? What what am I doing? Right. And that was a vision that uh, took us, you know, a long time to... Me a long time to embrace... But I could see, as time went on, the genius of it. Right. And I think it, it took a lot of people by surprise. It was totally 180 degrees away from what traditional exactly. marketing was doing. Yeah, that's the thing. If you're flipping through a 1980s skateboarding magazine and it's product shot, product shot, product shot, product what? A guy in front of a car that's burning? I mean, it's just standing out and taking a chance and being different. And, and oftentimes that's what we have to do as entrepreneurs, right? Everyone's hooking left. We're going to hook right. We'll take the next uh, question from the students. Hi. Um, question is, did you ever have any reservations about handing off the marketing to Stacy, And were you ever uncertain about the types of advertisements, like the burning car, that they were putting out? I think we're kind of burned through that question. But it's a good question. And uh, yeah, I was real nervous because um, when I started out, you know, I was in control of everything. All of a sudden, I'm starting to give up control in, to different, the different parts of my company are going out. I'm going like, are you going to do as good as I did? And when Stacy said, I want to do ads, it was scary. So, yeah, that was, that was a, the first couple were real traumatic. The first one was really comical because we shot Stacy in the studio with a blacklight ad. And we paint, sprayed his hair with uh, blacklight paint and his hand. <clears throat> we put a black velvet robe over him so all you could see was his face and his hair and his hand and he was throwing a fluorescent wheel. It was all lit with black lights and then filled, filled in with clear light. It was, a, it was a really cool shot, but um, in the background, the art director at the time was going through, fastly going through a, a, an entire bottle of mezcal. That was, that was my introduction to <laughs> skateboard shoots. <laughs> with art directors. And I kind of went, what's an art director? 
And that, that was He's my a, introduction to art directors. A, bottle with, a guy with a bottle of Moscow. That's, yeah, that's an art director. Right. And he ate the worm. It was good. Oh, wonderful. Anyway. <laughs> no, but again, that's, that's part of being an entrepreneur, right? Uh, trusting people, giving them a little bit of rope. It totally is. And if it doesn't work, you pull back. The works, you give them a little bit more rope. Well, yeah, you have to let people fail too if you want them right. to learn. Exactly. You hopefully just, they don't take the company with them when they fail, right? Right. Or and if you don't, you're not going to get that HP environment. You're going to get right. the Boeing environment where people will, okay, I'm not going to take a chance here. I'm going to come to my desk and exactly. give you eight hours and that's it. Yeah. So um, you worked with a lot of famous skaters. Um, I know one anecdote with Tony Hawk was uh, he was the proud recipient of what an 85 cent check or something at one point in your career. In his career, but then that led obviously to tremendous fortune. What was the for him and for you guys? What was the tension between the folks that worked with you that weren't getting the big bonuses, the big checks? I can imagine people that were on your team and felt like they were contributing a lot, and they'd see these guys that are fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old. How did you, as the leader, have to deal with all of that? That. That question is, uh, is interesting, but it really is two facets in time. <clears throat> so the first part of your question is the dark ages. And if anything, our story is a story of survival. It's like we just wouldn't quit. We were dead and bled out on the sand, but we got up like a zombie and walked on anyway. Right. And that's kind of the way it was when we gave Tony an 85-cent check. I mean, we owed the bank. We were past due. They called our loan. We couldn't pay them. Mm. We couldn't pay our rent. Sometimes we couldn't make salaries at the end of the month. Right. And people were helping us and working there anyway, even if they didn't get paid exactly on time. And that's how bad the industry was. We were the top company in the industry in that time. And I think we sold, we'd sold like, you know, 500 decks and 600 wheels and 10 t-shirts. And wow. that, that was our that was supposed to feed, you know, 15 people right. and pay the bank right. and the rent, and it didn't. <clears throat> that was a really tough time. Going forward, we persevered through that. We got kicked out of a couple of places. Uh, fortunately, we got into a good place just as the market was turning. And is it, that's another complete issue that probably bears examination as to why that happened. But... Suffice it to say that in 1983, the market just went from, for you guys, from here, and it went like this, just like that. And all of a sudden, we were back ordered. You know, we went from like selling, hoping to sell a dealer one deck, he might have sold one, <laughs> to, could I have 20, please? Oh, great. What? what? And uh, we just, it was that way for the next five years. And we, really never caught up until about 1988. So, so when those guys started making a lot of money... When they made money, you know, all of a sudden their 7% royalty was, you know, it was 7% of, you know, they were selling 20,000 of their decks a month. Right, right. So it was a big check. Right. And they're making more than their parents were. They're making more than Stacy and I were making. Right. They were making big checks, and it was really hard to explain to her our management, you know, why that was justified and, and fair. Right. And I don't know if it was fair or not, but that was the deal, and we stuck by it, and, yep. you know, they went on and formed their own companies eventually. 
Well, I think, and there's also a lesson there too, I think for, for everyone watching and, and, and in the room, you're gonna have some stars, superstars at your company, probably in sales at most companies that are gonna ring the bell, they're gonna, they're gonna drive a lot of revenue, and many times they're the highest paid person at the company. And you'll have other people come and say to you as a leader, why is that person making all this money? It's like, well, you know what, they're ringing the bell. You know, go ring the bell and I'll pay you the same amount. You know, do invent tricks, become the next Tony Hawk, and, and you know, you can be getting those checks too. So sometimes you just have to, you, know, you have to do that with love, you have to do it with compassion, but sometimes you just have to give people that, that uh, hard reality that the person that's still driving the business is gonna get a big check. Well, you know, and in a society that we feel should be egalitarian, right, <clears throat> and should be kind of level and flat, and everybody should be compensated fairly, whatever that means. Right. Um, it kind of goes against paying your stars to do a good job. You know, is a football player worth twenty-five million a year? Does he bring in four million fans right. to see him? Right. Well, maybe he is. Right. You know, and that's a tough one. Um, we struggle with it as a society. We struggle with it as business owners. <clears throat> My experience has been that if you don't compensate your stars better than your mediocre performers, mm -hmm. you're going to lose your stars, and you're going to end up with all mediocre right. performers. Right. And that's not the way you win. So, and I think there's ways to keep everyone happy. Um, you know, you give people you try to be fair. Right. Right. That's share, all you can do. Share in the rewards. Yeah. Maybe it's not at the same level. 7% royalty checks for some and not for others, but yeah. yeah. I totally agree. So not to belabor Tony Hawk, but last question on him. When, I know you were exposed to him at 14 or something. He was a very young guy. Did, you, did he stand out to you as someone that would go on and really do you know, things in skating that some of the other guys didn't do? Or was that all too many years in the future? Um, Stacy saw him in his home park down in San Diego. And so he saw him in his own environment mm -hmm. and thought he was amazing. Mm -hmm. I first saw him on some, some of Stacy's videos. And to me, he was a, <clears throat> a tall, skinny, gangly kid right. that you know, did some cool tricks. But I couldn't see the genius that Stacy saw, right. the drive. And what Stacy saw in him really was his determination and his drive. When he would fall, he would get up again and do it again, even if he killed himself. He's going to get up and he's do it again. Yeah. And that kind of drive really is what took him past everybody else. So, you know, you look for that. In my case, it was determination, you know, that kept me going even when we were dead. Right. Tony, kind of same thing. You just keep going. Yep, and combine with some talent, that's quite a winning combination. But I always felt like in my career, I was not the smartest guy, but I was a hardworking guy. And I, would, I could work really hard. That's the one thing I could bring to, to work every day. And I think that's one thing everyone in this room, if they have the right attitude, can bring to work every day. Well, uh, tons of people have said this. It's nothing new. It's like, you know, hard work beats talent every time. Yeah. The guy who's talented and slacks off, right. he plateaus. He's happy with something. I thought the of guy some, just keeps working hard and keeps going. I thought of something when you were saying you were on the zombie in the sand. I, I'm probably not going to get this quote 100% right, but Babe Ruth once said, the, the, the brilliant sage Babe Ruth, once said something like, you can't beat the man that won't quit. And that's true. Like, if somebody isn't going to quit, they're not going to get beat. We'll take the next uh, question from the student. Okay. Uh, so you might have already answered my question, but I'll just ask it anyways, and then you can just... Uh, you might have already answered well, my you question. Could, well, let's get the next one then. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Welcome. 
Um, my question is, how important is it to build a business around something you love in comparison to building a business that is not enjoyable but very profitable? Well, <clears throat> basically, you have to go for the gold. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about um, the money. Trust me. When times get tough, you're not making any money. If you don't love what you're doing, you're going to be out of there. So not only is it not fun to do something that you don't love, it's stupid because you're going to get stopped somewhere and have to start over again. Right. Whereas if you're doing what you love, you're going to have enough momentum, emotional and you know, feeling momentum to take you through those tough times. And if you do what you love, you're going to work hard, and you're going to probably do good things. So there's no, there's no question. You know, there's that saying, if you're doing what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. It's not true. Um, there's definitely days I knew I was working, but it helps a lot. So if you, if you could have um, a chance to do a few things over, what are some mistakes that we might be able to learn from? I know I had a lot of them in my career. If you could get in that time machine and go, I'm not going to do that again, or I'm going to do this differently. You know, <clears throat> we all learn from our mistakes. And if I had... Not all of us, but... Well, those of us who survived do. Thank you. <laughs> and if you don't... If you don't make mistakes, you're not going to learn. Sometimes I'm, you know, I'm hard-headed. I kind of do it my way. And I'll go somewhere until I hit my head against the wall, and I go, okay, maybe we should go this way. And that's, that's worked for me. I've made a lot of mistakes. So to say I would do it differently would be to belie the mm -hmm. fact that I learned from that, mm -hmm. and that's how, how I got to where I am. Right. I think if I'd known all of every, everything I learned in the beginning, I probably could have got there sooner. Right. But I got to the same place eventually. At least I, I survived. And uh, our business is growing again in a time when most people's businesses are not growing because uh, we're doing some things right. So it could be worse. Right. We'll take the next student's question. Hi. How did you manage fund to build up a factory or manufacturing center for making a new and innovative but not highly used product like skateboard at the initial stage of your business? Okay. I think what you said was, how did I get my first manufacturing going when I started my business? Going from that kitchen, that garage, From out. Kitchen. Okay. Um, that's an interesting point because... Uh, I wasn't able to attract any venture capital, no investors. Uh, oh, my mom loaned me $10,000. God bless her. I, to do an ad, I needed money to do this ad, wow. two ads. And uh, I sold my house and took most of my equity out of the house. I had been fortunate to buy three houses, and by the time I had the third one, I had $50,000 in equity or something, and so I took... And that got me started. You bet the house. <clears throat> bet my, oh, no, I bought a smaller house. Well, you bet the equity. I bet, the e bet, bet most of my All equity. Smart. Yeah. And uh, we didn't have any money. So what we did is we went down to the used equipment place. We didn't buy anything new. We buy old, crummy used equipment we could get for 50 bucks. We could get a bandsaw or, you know, this kind of a thing yep. in the used equipment center in Los Angeles. And we bought what we need. We got our equipment together. We got a little 1,400-square-foot facility. 
<clears throat> and then we started building our tooling and our fixtures by hand. And throughout the history of the company, we've pretty much had to do that. When we invest in a new piece of equipment, it's always a big deal for us to this day. I mean, today, my first new piece of equipment, I think, was a, a special belt sander I needed to sand the edge of my aluminum boards because I needed a narrow, high-speed belt. And that was like $2,000, and that was like a lot of money for me in those days in 76, and it was, boy, big investment. You know, now we have to buy a new machine. It's, you know, it's maybe 150 or $400,000. That's a big investment for us. You know, if we have to buy a new machine to pour more wheels or whatever we need equipment for. So being able to do with very little, make it yourself if you can. Uh, most of the fixtures in our factory we've made ourselves. We bought old parts or pieces and we they're specialty equipment, and we put them together and made them ourselves. Because nobody builds equipment to make skateboards. Right. So you have to adapt things and then put them together and make something that will make a skateboard. So that was a painful, um, somewhat painful process. Bootstrapping can be painful. But, but you come out the other side of that, you control your own destiny. You don't have investors saying, George, we need to sell this company. I need to get my equity out. Exactly. Right? You, so, you keep control of your company. Right. And... You get the job done. It just isn't done in a fancy way. Everyone wants to go out and get VC money from some high-profile VC. It feels really glamorous, but you're giving up a lot of control of your future, right? You're turning over, maybe not turning over the keys entirely, but you're letting somebody sit the car with you as you go on your journey. So it's something you should think um, long and hard about. I'm a big fan. I mean, I invest in companies, but I'm a big fan in people bootstrapping. Bootstrapping is slow. <clears throat> But in the end, you end up with your own company. If you bring VCs or investors in, in the beginning, you're going to go, oh, I'm only going to give up 25%. Right. You're going to run out of money. Right. They know this. Right. Round two is going to be 50%. Round three, you're going to run out of money. Round three is going to be, and they're going to play on your naivete and the natural needs of business to yep. need capital. And if you can't self-fund or you're not willing to go slow, you're going to be in this trap that pretty soon you're going to be down to 2% and the money guys are going to own your company, yep. and you really don't have anything to say about it. Yep. And in some cases, you're just gone. Yes. No, that's the old vulture capitalist mentality. They tell you, George, spend. No, you need to spend more, spend more, spend more. And then you come back and go, I need some money. Oh, well, yeah. we need to talk about that. Well, I want to end on a, a question about the future. So what, you know, skateboarding's had its ups and downs. It's sort of a generational thing. Every gener new generation sort of recognizes it and, and makes it their own. What... What do you see for the future? What do you, first off, what do you see for the future of your company, and then how is that going to play out into the bigger world of skateboarding? Well, that's a, those are big topics for us. For our company, it's a really good time. Uh, it's a good time because we're able to grow when many of our competitors are not. We have a sound foundation that others don't. Um, we have a decent relationship with our bank, and we haven't defaulted on anything recently. <laughs> it's a good thing. And skateboarding is at a really unique juncture. Um, I explained that skateboarding is like, it goes in cycles. We thought they were 10-year cycles, and there have been 10-year cycles. But all of a sudden, we discover that there's like a 40-year cycle. And that's when we go back to the beginnings. Mm. And... All parts of skateboarding are now valid and being explored 
and invented, reinvented and rediscovered by different customers of ours. And 10 years ago, there was only one kind of skating pretty much that everybody did. That was called street skating. And there was a particular style and certain tricks that were cutting edge. And if you didn't do that, and you didn't dress the way they did, right. it was a kind of a star-bellied sneech thing. Yep. Now, <clears throat> what happened was a generation broke off from that 10 years ago, and longboarding started up. Mm. And longboarding actually bifurcated skating into two markets. And it, longboarding was a stealth market in the beginning. And these guys had their, we had our heads in the ground, mm. going, that is not a market, that is not a market. Right, right. And obviously it was. <clears throat> but what that did is it broke the whole market free to do what it wants to do. And we recognized that because Pal Peralta was the motherhood company in the 70s and 80s, the company that sponsored Rodney Mullen as a freestyler, that sponsored Tony Hawk as a vert skater, right. and Tommy Guerrero as a street styler. We sponsored all of the, we pioneered each of these areas and we helped develop them. We're the only company that did that. So for us, this is an amazing opportunity because skateboarding has come back to that. Freestylers are jumping up. You know, downhill racers are setting amazing records, mm -hmm. going 70 miles an hour. <clears throat> and sliding at 70 miles an hour, even scarier. And street style is still just as insane and crazy as it has been for the last 10 years. Skate parks are developing, and kids are riding down streets again. They're building little ramps for themselves. So it's all happening, and we're the only company in a position to really take advantage of that. So we're really in a sweet spot. And the market has come back around to where we can serve it again in a variety of ways. So it's an exciting time. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.